When I was growing up, I used to think that the best thing about coming from Des Moines was that it meant you didn't come from anywhere else in Iowa. By Iowa standards, Des Moines is a mecca of cosmopolitanism, a dynamic hub of wealth and education, where people wear three-piece suits and dark socks, often simultaneously. During the annual state high school basketball tournament, when the hayseeds from out in the state would flood into the city for a week, we used to accost them downtown and snidely offer to show them how to ride an escalator or negotiate a revolving door. This wasn't always so far from reality. My friend Stan, when he was about sixteen, had to go and stay with his cousin in some remote, dusty hamlet called Dogwater or Dunceville or some such improbable spot, the kind of place where if a dog gets run over by a truck, everybody goes out to have a look at it. By the second week, delirious with boredom, Stan insisted that he and his cousin drive the fifty miles into the county town, Hooterville, and find something to do. They went bowling in an alley with warped lanes and chipped balls, and afterwards had a chocolate soda and looked at a playboy in a drugstore. And on the way home, the cousin sighed with immense satisfaction and said, Gee, thanks, Stan. That was the best time I ever had in my whole life. It's true. I had to drive to Minneapolis once, and I went on a back road just to see the country. But there was nothing to see. It's just flat and hot and full of corn and soya beans and hogs. Every once in a while you come across a farm or some dead little town where the liveliest thing is the flies. And I remember one long, shimmering stretch where I could see a couple of miles down the highway, and there was a brown dot beside the road. As I got closer, I saw it was a man sitting on a box by his front yard in some six-house town with a name like Spigot or Urinal, watching my approach with an inordinate interest. He watched me zip past, and in the rearview mirror I could see him still watching me going on down the road, until at last I disappeared into a heat haze. The whole thing must have taken about five minutes. I wouldn't be surprised if even now he thinks of me from time to time. He was wearing a baseball cap. You can always spot an Iowa man because he's wearing a baseball cap advertising John Deere or a feed company, and because the back of his neck has been lasered into deep crevasses by years of driving a John Deere tractor back and forth in a blazing sun. This does not do his mind a whole lot of good either. His other distinguishing feature is that he looks ridiculous when he takes off his shirt because his neck and arms are chocolate brown and his torso is as white as a sow's belly. In Iowa, it's called a farmer's tan, and it is, I believe, a badge of distinction. Iowa women are almost always sensationally overweight. You see them at Merle Hay Mall in Des Moines on Saturdays, clammy and meaty in their shorts and halter tops, looking a little like elephants dressed in children's clothes, yelling at their kids, calling out names like Dwayne and Shauna. Jack Kerouac, of all people, thought that Iowa women were the prettiest in the country, but I don't think he ever went to Merle Hay Mall on a Saturday. I will say this, however, and it's a strange, strange thing. The teenage daughters of these fat women are always utterly delectable, as soft and gloriously rounded and naturally fresh-smelling as a basket of fruit. I don't know what it is that happens to them, but it must be awful to marry one of those nubile cuties knowing that there is a time bomb ticking away in her that will at some unknown date make her bloat out into something huge and grotesque, presumably all of a sudden and without much notice, like a self-inflating raft from which the stopper has been yanked. Even without this inducement, I don't think I would have stayed in Iowa. 
I never felt altogether at home there, even when I was small. In about 1957, my grandparents gave me a Viewmaster for my birthday and a packet of discs with the title, Iowa, Our Glorious State. I can remember thinking even then that the selection of glories was a trifle on the thin side. With no natural features of note, no national parks, no battlefields or famous birthplaces, the Viewmaster people had to stretch their creative 3D talents to the full. Putting the Viewmaster to your eyes and clicking the white handle gave you, as I recall, a shot of Herbert Hoover's birthplace, impressively three-dimensional, followed by Iowa's other great treasure, the little brown church in the Vale, which inspired the song whose tune nobody ever quite knows, the highway bridge over the Mississippi River at Davenport, all the cars seemed to be hurrying towards Illinois, a field of waving corn, the bridge over the Missouri River at Council Bluffs, and the little brown church in the Vale again, taken from another angle. I can remember thinking even then that there must be more to life than that. Then one gray Sunday afternoon, when I was about ten, I was watching TV, and there was a documentary on about movie-making in Europe. One clip showed Anthony Perkins walking along some sloping city street at dusk. I don't remember now if it was Rome or Paris, but the street was cobbled and shiny with rain, and Perkins was hunched deep in a trench coat, and I thought, Hey, c'est moi! I began to read, no, I began to consume National Geographics with their pictures of glowing laps and mist-shrouded castles and ancient cities of infinite charm. From that moment, I wanted to be a European boy. I wanted to live in an apartment across from a park in the heart of a city and from my bedroom window look out on a crowded vista of hills and rooftops. I wanted to ride trams and understand strange languages. I wanted friends named Werner and Marco, who wore short pants and played soccer in the street and owned toys made of wood. I cannot for the life of me think why. I wanted my mother to send me out to buy long loaves of bread from a shop with a wooden pretzel hanging above the entrance. I wanted to step outside my front door and be somewhere. As soon as I was old enough, I left. I left Des Moines, and Iowa, and the United States, and the war in Vietnam, and Watergate, and settled across the world. And now when I came home, it was to a foreign country, full of serial murderers and sports teams in the wrong towns, the Indianapolis Colts, the Toronto Blue Jays, and a personable old fart who was president. My mother knew that personable old fart when he was a sportscaster called Dutch Reagan at WHO Radio in Des Moines, he was just a nice, friendly, kind of dopey guy, my mother says. Which, come to that, is a pretty fair description of most Iowans. Uh, don't get me wrong. I am not for a moment suggesting that Iowans are mentally deficient. They are a decidedly intelligent and sensible people who, despite their natural conservatism, have always been prepared to elect a conscientious, clear-thinking liberal in preference to some cretinous conservative. This used to drive Mr. Piper practically insane. And Iowans, I am proud to tell you, have the highest literacy rate in the nation. 99.5% of grown-ups there can read. When I say they're kind of dopey, I mean they are trusting and amiable and open. They are a tad slow, certainly. When you tell an Iowan a joke, you can see a kind of race going on between his brain and his expression. But it's not because they're incapable of high-speed mental activity. It's only that there's... Not much call for it. Their wits are dulled by simple, wholesome faith in God and the soil and their fellow man. Above all, 
Iowans are friendly. You go into a strange diner in the South, and everything goes quiet, and you realize all the other customers are looking at you as if they were sizing up the risk involved in murdering you for your wallet and leaving your body in a shallow grave somewhere out in the swamps. In Iowa, you are the center of attention. The most interesting thing to hit town since a tornado carried off old Frank Sprinkle and his tractor last May. Everybody you meet acts like he would gladly give you his last beer and let you sleep with his sister. Everyone is happy and friendly and strangely serene. The last time I was home, I went to Kresge's downtown and bought a bunch of postcards to send back to England. I bought the most ridiculous ones I could find. A sunset over a feedlot, a picture of farmers bravely grasping a moving staircase beside the caption, We rode the escalator at Merle Hay Mall, that sort of thing. They were so uniformly absurd that when I took them up to the checkout, I felt embarrassed by them, as if I were buying dirty magazines, and hoped somehow to convey the impression that they weren't really for me. But the checkout lady regarded each of them with interest and deliberation, just as they always do with dirty magazines, come to that. When she looked up at me, she was almost misty-eyed. She wore butterfly glasses and a beehive hairdo. Those are real nice, she said. You know, honey, I've been in a lot of states and seen a lot of places, but I can tell you that this is just about the purtiest one I ever saw. She really said purtiest. She really meant it. The poor woman was in a state of terminal hypnosis. I glanced at the cards, and to my surprise, I suddenly saw what she meant. I couldn't help but agree with her. They were purdy. Together we made a little pool of silent admiration. For one giddy, careless moment, I was almost serene myself. It was a strange sensation, and it soon passed.